My name is Rick Renner, and I am in the ancient city of Pergamum, seated on the foundation stones of the great altar of Zeus, which was once in this place. It was magnificent. It sat on this ledge, 900 feet above the valley. And from down in the valley, the people could look up and they could see the great altar of Zeus with all of its gold and silver and painted decorations. And they could see the smoke billowing into the sky from the sacrifices that were offered here 24 hours a day. This altar was so magnificent that it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Today, it's on exhibition in the city of Berlin in the Pergamum Museum. But it used to be here. And this place was so wicked, it was so evil, that twice in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus calls it the seat of Satan. The word seat in Greek is the word thronos, and yes, it's where we get the word for a throne. Jesus said it's Satan's throne. And from this high and lofty place, this citadel, this stronghold, Satan ruled not only the city of Pergamum, but he also ruled the whole province of Asia. This really was Satan's seat. From Pergamum, evil powers controlled the entire province. And believers had to deal with that evil all the time. They couldn't get away from it. They walked through the streets of Pergamum. They saw a temple here, an evil temple there. They saw the smoke of incense going there and going here. They couldn't avoid the presence of evil. And since they couldn't avoid the presence of evil, they had to learn how to deal with it, how to resist it, and how to overcome it. They had to learn how to refrain from it, how to live holy and separated lives and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they did it, and they did it victoriously. And I'm going to tell you, if they could do it, you certainly can do it. Wherever you are, you can resist your environment, you can resist the evil, and you can successfully walk in the power of God. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. Stay tuned for a teaching you can trust, a message that will inspire, strengthen, and equip you with vital insights and understanding from the Word of God. Here is Rick. Welcome to the program. In the introduction, you saw that I was seated on top of what remains of the seat of Satan and ancient Pergamum. How I wish I could pack you up and take you there to see it yourself. It is such an amazing thing to see. It's still there. There was really a place called the seat of Satan. Now, that's what believers called it. In the natural, it was called the altar of Zeus. But when the believers saw it, they said, that's not an altar to Zeus. That is the seat of Satan. And that's what Jesus calls it in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13. And that's going to be the focus of our program today. What is the seat of Satan? And what relevance does that have to do with you and with me? And it's going to be great. But thank you for letting me come into your home today. It's such a privilege. And I want to remind you that if you have any kind of a need and you need somebody to pray with you, we're here for you. We believe in prayer. We're waiting to hear from you. And we would love to put our faith together with yours. Also, I want to remind you that I'm offering you my series called Christ's Message to Pergamum. It's a 10-part series based on these programs. It has all the points, all the principles, the video, the photos, the history, everything in these programs. They are just wonderful. And it comes with a study guide. You will be thrilled when you get your study guide. It is so loaded with information that will make the New Testament come alive for you. So order your copy today. It's good for you, 
to share with a friend or with a Bible study group. We're also offering you my book called No Room for Compromise, Christ's Message to Today's Church. And you know, just before we begin filming, I was looking through this book. I enjoyed this book so much. When I wrote this book, I made a decision that I was going to write a book the way that I thought a book should be written, the way that I wanted it to be written. What would I want in a book like this? So I put everything in it that I would ever dream for, history, maps, photos, art, all kinds of illustrations. It is just loaded with information and it will make the New Testament come alive for you. And because it's so beautiful, you may want to use it as a coffee table book in your house. A lot of people do. Very rare for somebody just to sit down and read this cover to cover because it's more than 400 pages. But most people use it as a reference tool, and I think that's probably how you will use it too. You are going to love this book. It is just magnificent. And I want to read to you just a little bit from the very beginning Listen to this. To effectively stand against the spiritual storms of these last days, we must turn our attention to the message Christ spoke to his church at Pergamum. That's what we're discussing in these programs. Those men and women of God endured great pressure from an unforgiving pagan society that surrounded them on all sides. At the same time, at the same time they were dealing with a pagan society, they were also grappling with the internal pressure of errant church leaders who were trying to convince them to conform to the world's moral standards. By studying Christ's message to the church at Pergamum, we will know not only what Christ commanded them, but we'll also know what he's commanding us and expecting of us today. I earnestly recommend that you read every page of this book with a sober and alert heart. It is imperative that we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church in this hour, for this may be the most seriously challenged time the church has confronted in more than 1,700 years. I really believe that. The times in front of us are very serious, and we need to know how to navigate those times and one thing for us to do is to turn around and look and see how the early church navigated their dark season. We can glean wisdom from it. We can learn from the words of Jesus, and it will equip us for what's in front of us. So order your copy today. It's called No Room for Compromise, Christ's Message to Today's Church. But we're going to pick up today where we left off in the last program in Revelation chapter 2, beginning again in verse 12. And Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, Jesus is speaking to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Listen to what it says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. Very quickly, I want to cover the word angel and the word church for review. The word angel here does not refer to a heavenly angel with wings, but rather it is the Greek word angelos. This Greek word angelos in this particular verse describes a human messenger or one sent on a special mission, one dispatched to perform a special assignment, a delegate, a dignitary. It describes the role of a pastor or a messenger of God. And as I told you in the last program, in this verse, we find something very important. God installs pastors over churches, and God respects those whom he sets in authority. And when you see Christ's message to all seven churches, Christ has a message for the church, 
but Christ never addresses it directly to the church. In all seven cases, he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, and on and on. He always addresses the angel or the pastor first, because it is the pastor's job to hear the words of Christ for the congregation. It is the pastor's job to ingest those words, to really taste them, swallow them, assimilate them into the system, eating the good parts and the bad parts, the commendation, the rebuke, the corrections, assimilating all into one system. And then it is the pastor's job under the influence, under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit to take that message that he has ingested and then feed it to his congregation. And that's what we find now again in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. Jesus addresses the leadership of the church. He speaks to the angel or the pastor of the church. The word church is this word ecclesia, which we covered in the last program. The word ecclesia was not originally a religious word. Now, when we hear the word church, we think of a traditional church. But originally, this was a very political word. The Greek word ecclesia from the word ek, which means out. The word kaleo, which means to call. When you compound the two words together, it means called out ones. And here's what the word ecclesia originally meant. Originally, it described a called, separated, prestigious assembly of distinguished citizens who determined laws, debated public policy, formulated new policies, argued and ruled in judicial matters, they elected the magistrates of the city, and even decided who should be banished. When this word ecclesia is used to describe the church, it depicts a body of believers, distinguished believers. We're distinguished if we're in Christ that have been called out, called for, selected, and assembled by God in every town, city, state, or nation. It is a body called upon by God to make decisions that affects the atmosphere of a region, which means we're not supposed to be a hidden group of believers hiding from the world. God has called us to arise to a place of influence and power. We're supposed to be changing the environment where we are. Is your church doing anything to change the environment? What are you doing to help? We're not supposed to cower in fear or be afraid of darkness. We are to invade the darkness with the light of the gospel and change the atmosphere. That's what the word ecclesia, the word church, emphatically tells us. But if you continue, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13 says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is and how thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. We're going to see today what that means, where Satan dwelleth. But notice the first of verse 13 says, I know thy works. Let's look at that word know. The word know is the Greek word oida, and the word oida always describes first-hand knowledge. This is not hearsay information or something that's reported to you by an angel or by somebody in prayer. This is to see something and observe it with your own eyes. And that is the word which Jesus now uses in this verse. It literally means to see, perceive, understand, or comprehend knowledge gained by personal experience or personal observation. This means Christ had been in the church we know that because in Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Bible tells us Jesus was walking in the midst of the church. Now we know what he was doing in the church. He was looking, he was watching, he was observing. 
This word know, the Greek word oida, means to see something and to know something by first-hand experience or personal knowledge. And really, this should be taken as a warning and as an encouragement. It should be an encouragement that Jesus is aware of everything that's going on. This must have been so encouraging to the church of Pergamum when they got this message to find out Jesus really knew they were in a very bleak environment. And Jesus knew that. That must have encouraged them. But in a similar way, this should serve as a warning because Christ sees everything. He doesn't just see our good points. He also sees that which we are doing wrong. Jesus saw every victory won. Jesus saw every misstep taken. Jesus saw every challenge faced and Jesus saw every demonic attack and every error that was tolerated. He saw it all. That's what this word no, the Greek word oida, emphatically means. Christ unequivocally possessed knowledge about them based on his own personal observation. He viewed every respect of the church and he knew its condition because he had seen it with his own eyes. What did Jesus know about the church of Pergamum exactly? Well, he knew many things, but I'm going to mention three. Number one, he knew about the demonic environment in which they lived. He knew what they were up against. Number two, he knew they lived under the sword of the proconsul. Now, we covered this in the last program. If you didn't hear that, go back to the archive and listen to that program. They lived under the dreaded right of the sword, which could have been used against them. And number three, they were living in horrible circumstances, being assailed by pagans from without. Jesus knew these things about them. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means what he did is what he does. If Jesus was walking among them then, he's walking among us now. If Jesus was observing them then, he's observing us now. If Jesus was looking at their victories, then he's looking at our victories. If Jesus was looking at their error, he's looking at how we tolerate error. Jesus sees it all. So this is a warning, and it's also an encouragement. Jesus does exactly today what he was doing 2,000 years ago. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I love Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, which says, All things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus sees it all. So let's make sure he's finding pleasure in what he sees in our life and in the life of of our churches. But then in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, it continues to say, I know thy works. That word works is the Greek word erga. The word erga describes deeds, actions, or activities. And it is so wide, it is so all-embracing that I would actually translate it like this. This is an RIV translation of Revelation chapter 2 verse 13. From my personal observation of you, I know all about your activities. I've seen it all. I know all there is to know. In fact, there's nothing about you or your works that I do not know. That's what this word means, the word works, the Greek word erga, all your activities. And interesting that Jesus said, I know thy works to all of the churches in the book of Revelation. 
Jesus knew about every one of them. Jesus knows about you. Jesus knows about your church. He knows about the church down the street. Jesus knows because he walks in the church with open eyes. He is observing. For example, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, Jesus said the church at Ephesus was a hard-working church that had lost its first love. How did he know that? He was in the church. He observed it. He knew it from observation. In Revelation 2, Verse 9, Jesus described the church as Smyrna. He knew they were facing poverty and tribulation. How did he know that? Because he had been there. He knew it himself. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, we're reading about the church of Pergamum. Jesus knew the church of Pergamum was living under the political shadow of the Roman governor and experienced political pressures and deadly persecution. He knew that because he had been there and he had seen it. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, Jesus knew the church at Thyatira had done many good works, but they were in jeopardy because of false doctrine that was trying to infiltrate their ranks. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 2, Jesus described the church at Sardis. Jesus had been in the church at Sardis, and with his own eyes he had observed that they had a great reputation, but in fact spiritually they were about to die. Jesus had been in the church of Philadelphia. We read about that in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8. And Jesus could see they had a great open door, many opportunities for the preaching of the gospel. And Jesus had been in the church of Laodicea, which was a rich church. And Jesus said to them in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, I know you're rich and you're increased with goods, but spiritually you are lukewarm and you've grown cold concerning the things of God. Jesus knew all these details about every one of these churches. And have you noticed, Jesus doesn't just say the same thing to every church. Jesus knew every church so specifically, so individually, that he could address specific characteristics in every one of these churches, and he can do that about your church too. What does Jesus know about you? What does Jesus know about your church? You see, that's an encouragement, but it's also a warning. But in Revelation 2, verse 13, Jesus goes on to say, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. This word dwellest is very important because it is the Greek word which means to settle down. It pictures one who has settled into a house or into a neighborhood. He feels completely at home there. And the verb tense that is used in this verse describes continuous action. In other words, they're not just visitors. They're not guests that are coming and going, but this really is their home. This is continuous. They dwell there or they are permanent indwellers. And this was very important when Jesus was speaking to the believers that were suffering persecution in Pergamum because they could not escape their environment. I know we would all like to escape hardship, but sometimes things are not escapable. They lived there. They legally were obligated to live there because that's where the government gave them rights to live. They couldn't just pack up and move somewhere else. You lived where the government said you could live. Their families had lived there. Generations of their families had lived there. This was the place where they regularly dwelled, where they regularly lived. And Jesus was fully aware of where they were, where they were stuck. He knew they couldn't run from their situation. And Jesus said to them, I know where you dwell. The Greek could actually be translated, I know where you've settled down and where you continually dwell. Wow. Jesus says, even where Satan's seat is. That's verse 13. Now, what in the world does this mean, Satan's seat? 
First of all, the word Satan is the Greek word satanas. In Greek, it describes one who hates, accuses, or slanders, one who conspires against an adversary. And the first thing it tells us is Satan was really conspiring against the church. Satan wasn't just haphazardly hoping to take them down. He was conspiring against them how to take them down. And the Bible says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's seat is. That word seat is the word tronos. The earliest use described physical chairs in people's homes that were reserved solely for the head of a household. In ancient times, the man of the house held supreme authority over all domestic matters and had the final say-so in all decisions. It was customary to refer to the head of the house as the Lord of the house. He even had a seat that was designated just for him and no one else was allowed to sit in that seat. It was just for the master of the house. It was considered inappropriate and disrespectful for anyone else to sit in his place of honor. It was a seat for the undisputed master of the house and that seat was a symbol of his ultimate authority. In the eastern lands of the Roman Empire like Pergamum, pagans used this word seat, the word tronas, to describe invisible seats of power upon which the local gods sat to rule their towns, their cities, or their provinces. And by using this word seat, which described the seat for the indisputed master of the house, Jesus was saying Satan in Pergamum was the master of the house. He had a throne. He sat on that throne. He sat on his seat. He was the absolute master of the house when we talk about the city of Pergamum. And he had ruled there for generations with no one ever resisting him. He had free reign. And in fact, Satan's power was so entrenched in the city of Pergamum that from Pergamum and through the authority of the Roman government that was established there, he began to rule the whole region of Asia. Asia was absolutely covered with spiritual darkness, but it all came from Pergamum, where Satan's seat was. That is absolutely what this means. His power had been unchallenged in Pergamum for centuries. But now the church had been born. And the church was preaching. The believers were preaching. They were driving back darkness. They were trying to unseat Satan in their city. And that's what God's calling you to do. He's calling you to unseat Satan in your city, to unseat Satan in your family, to unseat Satan in your neighborhood. That is the call of God on you and your church. Something else very important. When the Bible talks about the seed of Satan, the Greek has a definite article that's important because it describes a specific throne, a real throne, a real seat. This was a real seat on which Satan sat in Pergamum. And Jesus was calling on the church to unseat him. And that's what he's calling on you to do. We're out of time, but I'll be back in just a moment and I'm going to pray for you. Explore the Bible and the first century church with Rick Renner's book, No Room for Compromise. In this masterful hardback Bible study, Rick transports you to the first century in the life of the early church, exploring the relevance of Jesus' end-time message to the church of Pergamum then and how that end-time message is relevant today. 
On every page, Rick reveals the larger context of the book of Revelation and his appearance to the Apostle John, taking you on a journey through the first three centuries of Christian opposition within a pagan world. You'll be amazed to see how the early church thrived through the light, life, and power of Jesus Christ. This beautifully bound 400-page book can be yours for $80. Features on-location photography, added artwork, and historical illustrations that enhance the in-depth teaching. When you call or go online today, you can also get the 10-part teaching series, Christ's Message to the Church in Pergamum. As one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the church in Pergamum was a light of faith in the pagan darkness. In this series, you'll see how Jesus' message of holding on to faith is just as relevant today as it was in the first century. Available in digital or physical formats, starting at just $20. Don't miss this special offer, No Room for Compromise, and Christ's message to the church in Pergamum. Call now or go to renner.org to order. My name is Joel Renner, coming to you from our Moscow TV studio. And I wanted to say thank you to all of our ministry supporters. It's because of your support that we can do our work, reaching out to the forgotten people. One of our primary works in Moscow is reaching out to the outcasts of society, shut-ins, the homeless, the mentally ill, the orphaned, the disabled, street kids, and the incarcerated. But thanks to the support of our partners, we are reaching these precious souls and ministering God's love to them. We tell them that Jesus loves them and we give them the gospel, but we also express care by meeting some of their basic needs. Our ministry is involved with each one of these outreaches where we demonstrate care in ways that words alone can never do. This is all possible due to the support of our partners. But there are so many more that still need our help. So many more people battling hunger, poverty, mental illness, so many more orphans and children with special needs that need our help. Would you consider joining us as partners today? Your gifts can lift more people up that society has forgotten. We can't do this work without your financial support. When you give, we are able to take the gospel both to our nearby world and to the ends of the earth. We all have a part to play. Right from your home right now, you can help us help others by becoming our partner in the work, by supporting our work financially. Please call or go online to renner.org to give. To your support, we can continue to make a huge difference in people's lives. God is calling you to unseat Satan in your family. He's calling you to unseat Satan in your neighborhood, in your church, in your city. Jesus is tired of the devil being the master of the house, and you are equipped by God with the word of God, the power of God, and the blood of Jesus to unseat the devil. That is how powerful you are. If you'll pick up the gospel, begin to preach it and shine its light, you will push the darkness out. That was Christ's message to the church of Pergamum, and it is still a message that's speaking to you and me today. We're called to do that. We would love to pray with you. Let us know how to pray with you. We'll help you push the darkness out. But I remind you that we're offering you my series called Christ's Message to Pergamum, a 10-part series based on these programs with all the points, the principles, the Greek words, the history, the videos, the photos. It's just amazing. And it comes with a marvelous study guide. And we're also offering you my book called No Room for Compromise, Christ's Message to Today's Church. The director of the museum in Pergamum said one of the best and most comprehensive books ever published on this subject. That's a comment from an unbeliever, a scholar 
who says, wow, this is an amazing book. I believe this book will make a difference for you, so I want you to order it. But I want to pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, according to John chapter 1, verse 5, that the light in us cannot be mastered, it cannot be tackled, tackled, it cannot be taken down. And I pray for the light of the gospel in my friend to explode and drive the light out and unseat the power of the devil in their life. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Wow, thank you for being with me today. I look forward to being with you tomorrow, but remember Ecclesiastes 8, verse 4. It says, where the word of a king is, there's power. God's word has power. So let that word work in your life today, and it will release divine power in you. I'll see you in the next program.